Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I am Charlie Sykes. So last night, what do we make of this? Um, the House uh, House Republicans vote and they don't kick out Liz Cheney. So I, in my newsletter this morning, I said, think of this as a two-act play. Last night, the House Republicans voted overwhelmingly to keep Liz Cheney in her leadership position despite her heresy of voting to impeach Donald Trump. The vote was 145 to 61. Now, the second act of this play is going to be later today when they're going to be voting on that Democratic resolution to strip Marjorie Taylor Greene of her, the bigot, uh, bigoted conspiracy theorist of, uh, of her committee assignments. And I'm sorry to give you a spoiler alert here, but the Republicans are going to vote overwhelmingly to back Marjorie Taylor Greene. So I want to talk about this. And our guest today is A.B. Stoddard. Welcome back to the podcast, A.B. Appreciate it. Great to be with you, Charlie. So can we just engage in a little schadenfreude first before we get into like, the heavy lifting here? So this the, Matt Gates is all in on this, right? I mean, Trump world is all in on the dumb Cheney thing. Apparently Donald Trump was making calls and Don Jr. is tweeting and Sean Hannity is out there. But but Matt Gates is the guy that actually got in a freaking airplane and went out to Wyoming to campaign against her. And he has been calling for a vote. He's been saying he went on he went on Tucker Carlson's show and says Kevin McCarthy needs to hold a vote on Liz Cheney. If he doesn't hold a vote on Liz Cheney, then the Republican conference is a total joke. More than half of the Republican con conference has said this person, this person, wouldn't even say her name. This person does not speak for us. And then he goes on uh, Steve Bannon's podcast where he's identified as an author and firebrand. <laughs> uh, which I love that is like yes, Matt Gates, author, firebrand. I'm, I'm gonna oh. I'm gonna ask for that next time I do something. I'm gonna go on MSNBC. It wouldn't be author, firebrand, and he was totally confident he had the votes. This is this is Matt Gates from I think it was just yesterday. My concern is that though today we have the votes to remove Liz Cheney, that somehow the establishment's going to find a way to you know <laughs> kick the question, avoid a vote. And um, what do you mean that, by that? Tell our audience what you mean by that. Well, you've well, got look, the I mean, votes. The you've got, you've the got the votes to remove her right now, yeah, right? But you and I both know that, that like the establishment can win with less votes, right? Because they are masters of the process. They're established for a reason and they're good at it. You know, I mean, like the, the chapter in my book I wrote about it is two parties, one scam, because this is not a town where it is like red team versus blue team anymore. Uh, and, you know, you guys see it every day. Okay. So A.B. Stoddard. First Matt of all, fewer Gates. votes, not less votes. But Matt, my boy, um, I, I thought it was amazing that he would go out there knowing, because we all knew yesterday, that there was no official list of the purported 115 people ready to heave Liz Cheney out of her leadership post. There was just talk of, of a majority uh, required, but but in the end, they um, they didn't have they didn't have those people ready to go and they obviously didn't have the votes. They never had a list and she suspected that. And as she worked the phone, she realized that number wasn't real uh, for a secret ballot. Um, Matt Gates was quoted recently. I loved this in Politico. There was a piece about how Kevin McCarthy was really trying to pull his troops together last week and telling them, I'm not going to stand by while we sort of cannibalize each other and keep losing. So you have to stop going after individual members. And he particularly asked Matt Gates, who proudly told a reporter on the record, ended up in Politico. I don't know if it was the Politico reporter that Kevin had asked him, you know, he saw him after a TV hit and he, and he had asked him to stop using her name. But 
um, he, 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 he paused using her name for a day or so, but it was just so obvious that she's the person standing in the way of the MAGA first movement or the America first movement that he had to start naming her again as someone who could not represent the conference. Mm -hmm. So he's deep into the machinations of uh, leadership um, and how um, the, the America first movement can um, infiltrate the leadership. And I guess he should have been familiar with all those rules. He talks about the establishment mastering, but um, in the end, Charlie, we both know that a secret ballot is not in the age of Trump um, the last word because these people, the people who voted like Liz Cheney to impeach Donald Trump, including Peter Meyer, who just took the Justin Amash seat in Michigan, talked about how their colleagues who were going to vote against impeachment told them they were doing the right thing, but feared that their wife would be attacked on the way to the grocery store. So that's, you know, the, the sort of performative public posture of Trump support is always different than the private one. Um, Liz Cheney knew she was going up uh, against this force in a secret ballot, and she did some good work to pull in a lot of numbers. I still think 61 is appalling. It is appalling, but you know, I mean, to, to the, to the point there, I mean, the real difference between these votes is, you know, one's, one's in secret last night, the secret ballot, the other one's going to, that will take place later will be, be public. So, you know, this, this is really just sort of a reminder of this gap between Republicans say in private again, you know, as opposed to what they're doing in public. So, you know, I mean, yeah, there's some people who are willing to do the right thing as long as it's anonymous. Right. That's that is that is that is the problem. You know the amaz most amazing thing about that uh, that Matt Gates clip, actually the thing that really was my takeaway. I mean, obviously, I wanted to sort of dunk on him for thinking that that, that he actually had the votes when he didn't. Um, but the fact that he he's actually written a book, which was, again, I'm sorry, blows my mind that Matt Gates actually wrote a book. But this is another one of those things. In the back of my mind, I always keep wondering. You know, we have this illusion or this belief that guys like Matt Gates are so influential that that uh, you know the, the Trump forces are so irresistible, and and maybe they are in the, in the public votes. But but Liz Cheney tested a proposition. What if you stood up against them? What if you faced them down? What if you didn't back down? What if you you know looked them in the eye and and what you're finding? I, th I thought was uh, Barbara Comstock had a good tweet yesterday where she said you know the Freedom Caucus, which she spelled with a Q demonstrates their impotence again, a lot of noise and bluster, but they fizzle bigly in the end. And so it, it kind of did reveal them as being a little bit, a little bit hollow, at least when it comes to secret ballots. Right. I mean, again, I don't know how to dissect this in terms of the direction they're going to continue to take the vote today on Greens committees. Uh, Kevin McCarthy's, um, you know, future weasel acts, because there is pressure uh, on the money front, right? So there's, I mean, first of all, just back to Matt Gates really quickly. I don't, I don't know if he is an author of a book, but, um, but maybe when you're on Twitter, you get to call yourself an author um, and a firebrand. So yes, maybe Donald author, Trump is too, firebrand. but I was actually really surprised that Matt Gates in MAGA world was sort of allowed to jump on a plane and go to Wyoming. Uh, I think Don, DJ TJ, you know, fakes a better mountain man than Matt Gates uh, in his sweater vest, all 39 pounds of him with his like dude, like 17 year old um, 
uh, cadence, but mm-hmm. I, um, I'm surprised <laughs> that he has, you know, really sort of rocketed to the front lines of, um, of a stardom that, that was stunning to me. And, um, well, he's got a lot of competition now. I mean, when you, when you think about, you know, the, the, the competition for the, 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 the Trumpiest person, you got, you got Marjorie Taylor Greene, you got Lauren Bobbert, you got Madison Cawthorn, yeah. you got, uh, you know, Jim Jordan's out there doing stuff. There's always, there's always the Louis Gohmert, you know, wing. And, and so Matt, Matt has to, has to work a little bit harder, you know, to keep that particular, that particular brand. Um, I, I like the fact that he said he would resign his seat in Congress because he was so passionate about actually <laughs> defending Trump in the Senate that if, you know, he, he can't do it as a sitting member of the House, be a defense lawyer in the Senate. So he said, um, I'm, I'm, will, I'm willing to resign my seat to do it. And by the way, and then like, you know, all of America said, yes, this is a good deal. Great trade off. Do it. Uh, no. So, but Matt Gates is, you know, is out there and uh, this was a, a bad day for him. This was a humiliating defeat for that particular group. So again, you know, you, you, you point out that let's not get too giddy about the fact that, uh, that Liz Cheney survived 61 votes against her in a secret ballot is, you know, gives you a sense of where the party's going, but also the, the flip side of this was that Marjorie Taylor green gets a standing ovation from at least half some of her colleagues. Um, McCarthy does absolutely nothing to remove her from the committees. Uh, there's no vote on her whatsoever. There's a vote on Liz Cheney, but not on Marjorie Taylor Greene, despite all the bizarre, bigoted, crazy, nutty things that she said. And now there's going to be a vote today on this Democratic motion to strip her from these committee seats. Now, you're a longtime um, observer of politics in Congress, to, and you can disagree with me here. It strikes me as an act of political malpractice that Kevin McCarthy is allowing that vote, that he didn't fix the problem because now all of his members have to go on the record supporting the crazy lady. And so you're going to have, what, 150 or more, 100, who knows how many uh, Republicans who are basically going to write their opponents' ads that, you know, when push came to shove less than a month after the attack on the Capitol, they are going to be voting in favor of the woman who believes in, in you know, J- Jewish space uh, lasers and, uh, you know, is, is, is mused openly about the assassination of Democratic leaders. So it's, 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 it strikes me as a, as, a, as a dumb move by McCarthy to let this happen. Charlie, this is the most staggering failure of leadership. I mean, Kevin McCarthy has not cloaked himself in glory, but this was supposed to be taken care of a week ago many, many days ago. He has been hearing from donors. He has been hearing from, you know, party stalwarts and people around him saying, you make this mess go away. Do not make it the mess of the entire conference. And he goes to, Steny Hoyer goes to him or the, you know, Pelosi's team says, we're going to do this. If you don't clean up this mess, we're going to act as the house to say that a person like this doesn't have standing to serve on any committees unless you, you know, as, as traditionally, um, unless you as a party conference take care of it yourself, which has always historically been the way that this has been handled um, in, you know, you know, like with members like Steve King or whoever. So I think the Democrats were stunned that Kevin McCarthy um, did this to his own members. I think his own members obviously are stunned and um, no one uh, wants wants this vote to be taken right. and put people to be put on the record. But Kevin McCarthy 
literally thought, I mean, he's, he's very weak. He's, he, he doesn't want to deal with any of this. Um, he even at once, one point said that he didn't know if Marjorie Green had written those things, you know, um, mm-hmm. like maybe like there's like a false flag operation on Marjorie Green's Twitter feed. No. Um, and so the fact that he thought that by supporting Liz Cheney, but also not acting to remove her committee assignments, he could split the baby and do the least harm to himself really tells you everything, you know, that you need to know. And and we all know he publicly equivocated on Liz Cheney very much in an effort to please Donald Trump uh, in the days preceding the vote uh, to the point where we didn't know what exactly he was going to do. So he builds this element of surprise. He says, I stand by Liz Cheney, but we also have to hear out Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was, I guess, savvy enough. The reason she got uh, uh, this standing ovation was she said she walked just far enough up to the line to say that <clears throat> she understands these shootings are real and tragic at Park, Parkland and Sandy Hook or whatever, but that, um, you know, they're going to, you know, she sort of closed with like a monologue that you would hear, you know, from Hannity or something that they're going to come for all of us. And so she, she also managed to sort of please Kevin McCarthy enough uh, without really apologizing, um, but then also defiantly concluding um, that, you know, she is going to remain uh, this rebel and they all need to um, follow her, you know, anti-establishment path. So so she she managed to, to really inspire the kooks in the conference, too. And McCarthy knows all this and, and he knew that she was uh, nuts during the primary. Scalise did not support her. Um, and supported her opponent. And this is a mess that he's made and he made it much worse for his membership. And that's as a leader, you're, you are supposed to protect your members. Even if you make them take bad votes, uh, you you know, you, that's, that is your mission is to always be thinking of the conference and the rank and file. And, and he, he clearly publicly um, threw them under the bus. And, and then, of course, yeah, he has gone back and forth on on her. Um, um, he's waffled on everything, um, and so this was was this soundbite. I think is after um, after the the vote yesterday, where he's pretending that he doesn't even know what QAnon is. Let's play that. I think it would be helpful if you could hear exactly what she told all of us, denouncing QAnon. I don't know if I say it right. I don't even know what it is. Um, any from the shootings. She said she knew nothing about lasers or all the different things that have been brought up about her. Um, okay, that's just pathetic. I mean, that is just pathetic that he's pretending. I mean, obviously, this has been consuming his entire conference for the last several weeks. Um, he's been on record before uh, talking about QAnon. How do you not know what, what QAnon is? How do you not bother to at least like read or ask your aides, tell me about QAnon? And yet he's pretending, I just don't know about it. This is kind of the new technique, right? I just don't know. I didn't read those tweets. I forget. Let's drop it down the memory hole. Uh, so that was that was pathetic. So I have a question for you. This is interesting because uh, so um, Kevin McCarthy is, is obviously still lives in, in fear of Donald Trump. So he makes the statement on the floor of the House where he says, you know, Trump is responsible for what happened on January 6th. It's, uh, it's kind of it's surprisingly strong for him. Uh, he immediately gets backlash and has to go crawling on his hands and knees down to Florida to kiss the ring again, right? And make nice with Donald Trump to get back into Donald Trump's good graces so that Donald Trump will support Republicans in 2022, right? Mission accomplished. Did he undo all of that last night by standing up for Liz Cheney? 
I don't. I mean, if, if you're if you're Donald Trump, you're going, "Oh, that bastard!" Ah, just because you know that that the the shelf life of loyalty is is awfully short in Trump world. Oh, true, but I think that he was probably able to tell Trump world, "I saw the writing on the wall and that she had the votes." And the, and so it was going to imperil us more if I didn't support her. But he stood by Marjorie Taylor Greene um, in you know in, basically by default, and so um, in a weasel way. And so uh, I think that you know that is money in the bank um, in, in Trump world. So that that's how I think he saw the play. Um, the you know again the two step the both ways the split the baby, um, Charlie. I am one of those people who becomes more enraged and traumatized by January 6th as the Republican Party continues to whitewash it. Yeah. Because when it was real, it was upsetting. But now that people are trying to move on like it was another Trump tweet, I'm really freaked out. And so the idea that you could stand up as a congressional leader who gets next to the president the most serious classified intelligence on the planet and pretend that you don't know what QAnon is, that in itself disqualifies him from his position as leader of the House GOP conference. It is his job. After January 6th, obviously six months ago it was his job, but after January 6th, it is his job to know what QAnon is. And it's worth just reiterating that that was less than a month ago. That was less than a month ago. And, you know, I also share your, your, your reaction to this, that the the longer we go and the more Republicans are dismissing it, it is, it is freaky because the longer we go, the more we learn about it, the more details we learn about it, the more pictures we see of how savage it was, how violent it was, how it was planned. Um, the, the malice of forethought of derailing the election and people like Marjorie Taylor Greene right in the middle of that. I mean, the night before going to a planning meeting, you know, and leading people to believe that something dramatic was going to happen on January 6th to overturn all of this. And yet the Republican party just like, yeah, what is that? Were there like people who believe these strange conspiracy theories? It is bizarre. And the fact that even the the death of a police officer uh, hasn't changed their position. And by the way, we keep talking about the five people that died. Um, what about the people who were uh, severely injured and perhaps maimed for life as a result of that? I just want to I just want to throw that I want to throw that out there. Uh, no, it's it's the the lack of leadership, the lack of seriousness is is really appalling. And of course, we're going to see that uh, played out uh, next week during the the impeachment proceeding, where I'm guessing that most senators are just going to want to hide behind some sort of procedural constitutional issue. Um, there are going to be very few of them. I think we're going to stand up and actually defend Donald Trump substantively. Uh, but um, do you expect anything surprising to happen at that impeachment trial? So, Charlie, I remember very well our many conversations in the fall of 2019 <clears throat> about Ukraine and the House impeachment. And in the winter, I, I, I'm like a, 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 an impeachment 2020 dead ender. I still cannot get over the fact that this was not an issue for Republicans down ballot yeah. from President Trump. I cannot get past the fact that Pat Cipollone was a witness in that trial and he served as a, as a lawyer 
They broke so many rules. They refused witnesses. Senator Alexander, in essence, said the House has proven their case. So let's just leave it to the voters, meaning we have to just totally abdicate our duty because we don't want like our voters to throw things at us um, at the parking lot of the footlocker. I mean, that's what he was basically saying. Like, I can't deal with this. They completely abdicated their constitutional duty as as the legislative branch, a check on the executive, the to to hold a fair trial once the other chamber had, you know, had sent them articles of impeachment. I mean, you can vote to acquit, but you can't not have witnesses. There were so many violations of their duty and and their oath in that impeachment um, that I am really uh, trying to gird myself for next week yeah. in that we know they'll hide behind a procedural argument, but we also know that the case will be so damning. It will be so appalling. It will be so real. And for many Americans new, I mean, they'll learn things about it that people who follow the news at a granular level, like we do know, but they don't yet know about uh, before the election, after the election, um, the incitement process, January 6th, the refusal to respond on January 6th, all those details that are so alarming and pernicious, all of the of the of the the narrative that speaks to how much he has really broken our system and and you know that we suffered a real attack on our government and people are trying to wish it away. All of that will be so dramatic that we will get so upset again <laughs> watching. These people violate their oath for the second time in a year's time. I, I, I'm sorry if I sound melodramatic, but that's what's going to happen. Well, I think it's going to be dramatic next week. You know, it, you, you know, doing a flashback to uh, to the first uh, impeachment trial. Remember, one of the strongest arguments, of course, uh, you know, against impeachment uh, the first time around was you don't want to overturn an election. We can't overturn an election, right? Literally, that's what this one's about. Is the attempt to overturn an election? Just a little irony there. Oh, but also, One Charlie, the, the amazing thing yeah. about that there's always there's always some BS argument in the age of Trump that if he sure. does something wrong, if he viol- if he literally abuses his power, and we criticize it, we have Trump derangement syndrome. If you know he lies eighteen times in an hour, we don't like his quote style, and so. What they were saying in 2020 was if you if a president is elected and then does anything to violate his oath of office or abuse power, we can never impeach him because then right. because that means he loses his job, which, of course, is the point, the, the point of impeachment that you are guarded and governed as a president of the United States and commander in chief by the threat of impeachment. That is why you're not supposed to enrich your family. It's why you're not supposed to steal an election. So every argument is always a load, but they do it with a straight face anyway. No, and and, and really, the, and, and the fact is that it's rendered impeachment virtually a dead letter. You think of all the things that, that he could have been impeached for. He could have been impeached. I think he ought to have been impeached for the obstruction of justice that was laid out in the Mueller report. I mean, he could have been impeached uh, as well just for the the threat and the call to Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State in Georgia, where he was trying to steal an election. But and he, of course, what was um, uh, impeached for the phone call to Ukraine. But the, one of the qualitative differences in terms of politics, I think, um, as, as well as history, 
between all of those other things and what's going to happen next week is the, the, the events of January 6th were on television. They were caught on video. They have been well-documented. They are dramatic. Um, there's, I mean, dramatic doesn't even seem a strong enough word. And if, if the reports are correct in the, and the house Democrats do play those videos, my experience has been that people react just in a completely different way then they react to the printed word or even the recording. It's not an abstraction. It's a real thing. And I think that that everybody in that room is going to know exactly what happened, why it happened, that, you know, that Officer Sicknick would be alive today if Donald Trump had not lied about the election. And it was the lie. It was the repeated lie. And it was a lie in which many of them we're also complicit, which complicates things as well. But they understand that the president stoked this fire, built this fire, um, you know, that he brought people to to Washington on January 6th. He led them to believe that they could do something that would overturn the election. He pushed that myth that Mike Pence could overturn the election. He lied to them and said, I will walk down with you just to make sure that everybody went to the Capitol. They, they, they know all of this. So I think it's going to have an impact, but I think in the end, we, we know what the result is, uh, is going to be. Um, but you know, we have been here, we, we've been here before so many times. Why anyone in the world still thinks that, yeah, it would be a good idea to give, give that guy power, give, give that guy influence. This, that, that's the thing. That's the thing that I, I keep coming back to is like, okay, so there are millions of Americans that really want him in the Oval Office still. Yeah. And Charlie, that's the thing. People always ask, why give Trump this power? He has lost the popular vote twice. His first election was a, f- a fluke. Um, he, whatever we could go on for hours, the House, the Senate, the midterms, everything, all the special elections, but they're afraid of the voters. I mean, the senators yeah, right. are, they have the same mindset as the house members who voted to, to against impeachment that they are under you know threat back home of being if not physically attacked socially marginalized um and they're going to lose friends over it. it and that is the power of a cult that is i mean they absolutely know that mike pence their former colleague in congress was within 60 feet and 90 seconds of being attacked and likely killed by a mob in 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 a day that only saw five or six deaths um but likely could have uh, resulted in hundreds and hundreds of deaths a huge massacre and they know that and they are afraid of the calls coming into their office and streaming on their um pages on social media and, um, you know, texts from their brother-in-law and they cannot do the right thing. That's what they tell themselves. I cannot do the right thing because the horde is coming for me. Well, this is an important distinction um, because I think that a lot of people think, you know, well, they're, they're, they're afraid of a tweet from Donald Trump and there are no more tweets. They're afraid of Donald Trump. But, and yes, that's true. But what they're really afraid of is they're afraid of the base because the crazy goes really deep in the Republican Party right now. It is the voter problem. I mean, yes, there's a Trump problem in Mar-a-Lago, but there's also a base problem everywhere in the country. And the radicalization and the crazification of grassroots Republicans is truly, I mean, it's, it's a thing. And uh, even if Donald Trump disappears, it is still out there. 
I mean, and, and, and that's something that I think that people um, tend to underestimate. Amy, how, how many votes do you think there'll be next week to convict? I'm thinking I'm thinking five. They'll get those five, but, but maybe even fewer than that. I think, there, I think the, the bet you have to make is that there's always fewer than hmm. uh, you think is reasonable. Uh, so five people said it was constitutional. Then there were some, you know, background quotes from people saying just because I didn't think it was constitutional doesn't mean I won't vote to convict. And we'll be, you know, listening to the testimony and the case laid out by the House managers. I'm always hoping that there's a surprise, uh, new developments. Maybe you could rope in eight, but um, I, yeah, I'm going to go probably with that five and, and maybe even um, some of those feel a squeeze at home and wimp out and say, um, everything is terrible. Uh, the president should have chosen his words more wisely. He did definitely um, stoke this passion, but uh, we can't actually vote uh, to convict. You know, the attorneys are saying that they're not going to be, you know, raising the big lie about the election being stolen again, but they are defending the president saying, well, you know, he was just exercising his First Amendment rights and we can't really be sure what the facts were. If uh, and these don't strike me as uh, as a or even B level attorneys in, in the courtroom, I could certainly imagine them um, going off into an area that might offend one or two senators enough to vote. But who knows? OK, so. We have plenty of time to think about impeachment, although it's hard to imagine that that's happening on Monday. So let's talk about elitism and food. I, you know, John, John, is it John Neely Kennedy? We have to say is not to be confused with John F. Kennedy. This, right. We never, this, want, this, we never want to confuse him with John the, F. Kennedy. The, the, the corn pone populist from Louisiana who uh, one, one time people thought he was kind of this witty, intelligent, funny guy. And he's sort of become, you know, foghorn leghorn. Um, but he's got this obsession with elitism and food and you, you saw him last night where he's talking about the the tuna tartare crowd so let's just play okay so that, because i i have a question about all of this and this is this is his this is his obsession uh united states senator from louisiana republican who wants to pose as a man of the people and the way he defines the people apparently is by what they eat so let's do the tuna tartare thing Kennedy, sir, welcome back. It's been a while. Senator, your take. Well, um, Sean, I, I try to see grace everywhere I can. So while I'm going to say this firmly, I want to say it gently. I think the American people are so tired, so tired of being lectured by the managerial elite. The entrenched politicians, the media, the academics, the, uh, the corporate phonies, the tuna tartar crowd who live in the expensive condos with the high ceilings and the important art on the wall, who think they're better than the American people, who think they're smarter and more virtuous than the American people, and who think they are special. And that the rules don't apply to them. Okay, tuna tartare. I don't know. I, are you a fan of tuna tartare? Maybe. I mean, is, is that, I don't is touch that... the stuff, Charlie. But I'm about to puke. Uh, I, I, I have to say, the contempt with which John 
Neely Kennedy and Josh Hawley view these constituents they're trying to represent or win over in Hawley's case in a race for president a few years from now is so repulsive. Uh, they are absolutely preying upon obvious anti-elite um, sentiment uh, and passions in these people um, while they are obviously clearly themselves hyper-educated and accomplished elitists. Yeah, okay, didn't mention them. Uh, I mean, who Senator trust Kennedy, the elites. Yeah, Senator yeah, Kennedy went, went to Vanderbilt, um, University of Virginia School of Law, Oxford University. He's worth like, you know, $7 million. He's not some corn pone guy from, you know, the bayou down there. I mean, he's this is, this is like a, a shtick. And it's it, it it's they're they're all posers. But but it's one thing to pose, and it's another to do it with. As I said, this is contemptuous. It's and Donald Trump is guilty of this too. He doesn't want to hang out with those people at the rallies. He wants them to love him from beneath the stage and the stanchions. But these for and what I love is like he's from a state that loves food and has some of the best has produced some of the best culinary expertise in the country and he's talking he's like talking down food i mean the, the people kennedy thinks that his shit doesn't stink and it's yeah. so obvious i try to see grace and everybody and everything that is such a hot load he doesn't try to see grace or he wouldn't be speaking this way okay uh, but it, making but up some like boogeyman for people to hate because they eat raw fish well, well, also, I mean, this is the obsession with this. And this is the thing. This is this is him from a campaign rally a few years ago. He's, he's actually standing on stage with Donald Trump uh, talking about the but cultured cosmopolitan goats milk latte. Let's just play it. I, he, he does it better than I will do it. I stand before you tonight as a proud deplorable. <laughs> Unlike some of the folks in Washington, D.C., I'm talking about the cultured, cosmopolitan, goat's milk latte drinking, <laughs> avocado toast eating insiders elite. <laughs> avocado toast eating. He's standing, by the way, in front of, you know, man of the people. Um, you know, old stash Trump there. I mean, this is this is one of those the the, <laughs> the, the cognitive dissonance of you know Donald Trump who who's now ensconced in this Saddam Hussein palace down in Lago, <laughs> you know, flying around in his jet and everything, that he's like the just down with everybody eating the grits. You think Donald uh, Trump's ever eaten fucking grits in his life? I mean, seriously. You know, I truly hope that the QAnon crowd now confuses uh, Senator John Kennedy with the John Kennedy Jr. that Hillary Clinton had killed um, to um, yeah. block him from opposing her in a Senate race, but actually was secretly alive and was gonna come back and Mike uh, Pence was gonna be knocked off the vice presidential ticket um, and become Donald Trump's 2020 running mate. I think that that's what Senator Kennedy needs. 
Yeah, that would was something <laughs> like that. Oh, did you happen to see that video of, of the woman that was maybe it was on CNN where she's talking about how she was deeply involved in Q? This is a digression, but she's, you know, you know, talking into the camera, talking to the interviewer about how, you know, she was sobbing, just, you know, just sobbing on on inauguration day when when Joe Biden was uh, was sworn in because she thought, well, the Chinese are going to come. I maybe do I need to get my kids because the, the liberals are going to come and take my kids from me. And she'd been absolutely convinced that it was never going to happen because she'd been told by um, the QAnon people that she trusted that uh, the TV would go black and the military was going to arrest all the Democrats and all of the Hollywood celebrities and put them in, in, in jail or in camps um, while the military uh, controlled the country, you know, protected us from radical socialist leftists. And then they would restore Donald Trump as president. And she absolutely believed this was going to happen. And she was just completely stunned um, to find out that it, that it wasn't true. And in the person who's interviewing her is asking very gently, like, this is what you believe. You sincerely believe this would happen. Yes, because I don't I don't read newspapers. I mean, we've been told not to pay attention to the fake news. We've been told not to watch the news and everything. So I believe this. And now maybe if Donald Trump would have told me that this wasn't true, that this wasn't right, I would have believed because I was a big Donald Trump fan. And you're going, oh, my God, these people vote. You know, it's just yeah, it's yeah. just no, Charlie, I did see it. Okay. And it's very compelling. I recommend everyone look it up. I also listened to the first half of Anderson Cooper's QAnon special that ran last Saturday from nine to 10. I was in a car. I only listened to half of it. I was on a long drive home and then I reached home. So I stopped, but it was extremely compelling. Um, and it is, uh, it, 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 the burden is on all of us to learn more about this, even though we don't want to, we want to look away, but back to Kevin McCarthy, um, and the Republican leadership and, and the Republicans in Congress and, and the Republican candidates for office, just because their voters don't read the news and fall down YouTube um, tunnels and into QAnon very easily from one false move on Facebook or whatever, you know, can happen very innocently and quickly, doesn't mean that they have to you know, look the other way and, and pretend it's not happening. They are responsible for saying there is a difference between these two things. They, they, can, they can get mad at tuna tartare eating um, elitists, yeah. but they are not differentiating between uh, dangerous conspiracy, uh, a delusion, mass delusion, and just being um, sort of, you know, Trumpian populist after he's left office. That's my concern is that they are still, they only say things like, I denounce the violence on January 6th. I'm anti-violence. Yeah. But they gotcha. don't say you've been lied to and we have a massive disinformation crisis in this country. And Charlie, I, I was in a conversation recently with a, a former Republican member who absolutely uh, just in response to, in this conversation as a group setting, in, in this conversation about the disinformation crisis and the fact that not only, and then also in particularly about the insurrection that, um, that Mike Pence had been um, basically put on a post by Donald Trump in mm -hmm. that two o'clock tweet where he said, he let us down um, you know, he's just whatever that I can't remember the exact words, but the crowd went wild because Donald Trump was disappointed in Mike Pence and they were hunting for him and they were going to hang him. And 
when I brought this up and said, we have a disinformation crisis and um, it, it, we cannot govern with, because there, there are not two truths. There are not two truths. We cannot govern this way. We can't even do you know, a spending bill where you bring out last year's and you cross out some numbers and quickly, like we can't do anything, let alone, let alone like big problem solving that we, you know, that we need to do in the years to come if there are two truths and we have this disinformation crisis. And it, the, the reaction that I got was just straight out of Fox and OAN and, and Newsmax that we're, uh, it's a free country. Everyone is free to think that the way, the way that they want to think and that um, Trump supporters do not appreciate the media telling them that they need to be deprogrammed. Yeah, yeah it, we've gotten to the point where it, it, if you try to correct a falsehood, you're insulting or attacking the audience, that it's a lack of, of, of respect. Well, you know, you know, part of this is, and I, I tried to make this point this morning on Morning Joe, I don't think I did it very effectively, but we really shouldn't be that shocked that the Republican Party is okay with Marjorie Taylor Greene and these other crazy conspiracy theories, because they were okay with Donald Trump. He was the conspiracy theorist in chief. Right. And so we've they've been marinating in all of this. They've been accepting it for years now. I mean, you know, it's not just birtherism and Spygate. I mean, you know, think of think of the things that, you know, the Donald, I mean, for people who stand up and go, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene believes these crazy things. Yeah, really? So if you're going to attack, you know, attack conspiracy theorists, you know, how do you turn around and then support, you know, Donald Trump? I mean, you think about the stuff that he's pushed, you know, the belief that vaccines cause autism, the Biden Ukraine conspiracy theory, you know, the, the birther stuff, the Central Park Five, um, his, uh, his the, the theories about uh, the theories that he's pushed about Obamagate or about the assassination of, uh, of Osama bin Laden. I mean, it go one after another, you know, the suicide of Vince Foster, you know, Epstein didn't kill himself, the deep state. I mean, you know, I, the, the, the stop the steal was just sort of his latest foray, but it was completely consistent with his obsession with conspiracy theories. Donald Trump brought Alex Jones basically into the fold when he was running in 2016. So this is part of the fabric. So they lack the guts to stand up against it because they've actually, you know, it's a major constituency, but but they've also made it clear that they're kind of okay with it, right? I yeah. mean, if, if the Republican Party was really, you know, you know, building this wall, this bulwark against crazy, they wouldn't have gone through the last four years. You know, I, I mean, here's a guy that's putting out theories about Joe Scarborough murdering this young woman and which was just incredibly just despicable and awful. And yet even after that, you had the Republican Party lockstep behind Donald Trump saying, yeah, four more years for this guy. Yeah. And um, I know you spent some good amount of time on Ted Cruz with other podcast guests. This oh, yeah. week, but I will say that we must quickly mention him and his father being involved in JFK's assassination. Uh, the, 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 you know, the, the speeches that that Ted Cruz gave in 2016 about Donald Trump's pathological lying problem and how corrosive it was were really, you know, they're they're very gripping. And I think that's the last time he ever spoke about the truth. They, they, re, they must think that this is the, re, you know, the reaction. And this must be the reaction, right? That if you say, well, 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 Trump is great and Marjorie Taylor's great as, and Green is great. And like all elitists are bad and so is arugula, but we really need to get on the same page about the truth that they're going to be told that they too are trying to censor people's minds. 
or am I being too nice to them? No, you're not being too nice to them at all. Um, it's, uh, I keep thinking that, that, that if in fact, I mean, look, I, I can't have any expectation for Donald Trump, but there are trusted voices on the right. There are still people who might have been able to push back against this and say, hey, listen, I'm with you on all this stuff, but this is wrong. You know, if Tucker Carlson used his position to say, you know, this is just really hammer it, like do not go there, do not associate with this, it might make an influence. You know, if Donald Trump had really believed that this was a bad thing, but Donald Trump never believed that. In fact, he was, he was, you know, he was very, very curious about all that. So let me ask you one more question in the time that we have left here, because you're a student of, 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 of Congress. What happened to the bipartisanship? Is, what, what happened? What, what is the dynamic? that's happening now with this COVID relief bill, this $1.9 trillion bill. You know, Joe Biden kept talking throughout the campaign about how he was going to get Republican support. He was going to reach across the aisle that he, you know, wanted to go back to those old days. And yet here we are right on the cusp of pushing this through the reconciliation. And there's every indication right now that this bill will pass, you know, on strict party line votes, no Republican support. What happened? Well, Right. I think there are um, there's blame to go around. Um, as of this recording, Republicans who got two hours with the president, two hours plus with the president the other night have not come back with a counter proposal or any response to what happened in the discussion. And the White House has made that clear that they were expecting something. So they think that's a little strange that Republicans aren't trying to sort of stay at the table, as we say. Um, there uh, is also the polling, which shows that um, they are they have the wind at their back and the public is supporting this. They are not making a controversial break here. Um, this is not the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. This is not bold climate legislation. This is not free college. This is not Medicare for all. This is the virus and the economy, the two intertwined emergencies, Joe Biden says is his main focus and the public is with him. And so the gamble is, do you wanna be a Republican in April who is blamed for not voting for those checks when they are popular? Now, yep. all of this could change, Charlie, and I'm not saying the Democrats are right to do any of this. I'm just telling you that's their calculus that Republicans, you know, they always come in and do whatever they want and they don't worry about being bipartisan. So Biden does this outreach. He gives them all this time. He, you know, would like to start the reconciliation process and still hope. And I do believe that that opening is still open, that they can stay at the table and do some things. I think that he will target. I mean, I'm sorry, means test. Um, yeah, it's good. Payments. Idea. I think there is still um time for the minimum wage, which is probably a gift to the progressives, but a sort of a gesture politics motion to show them I tried, Bernie, I tried, but it didn't end up in the bill because it's not germane to COVID. Uh, things like uh, money for new schools, things that have nothing to do with the virus. I think that they put them in there so that they can fall away, but it was a gesture to the left. Um, and so I do believe that if there are people um, if there are Republicans who are getting a sense that that stuff can come out and the White House has been clear that the 1.9 number can go down and they'll means test the payments. Um, I think that that shows me they're still actually at the table. Um, that would be sort of mansion, the most earnest Republican players 
and you know Biden and Ron Klain, that kind of thing. Not maybe not everybody um, in the bipartisan coalition, uh, but I think that if you are up in 22 as a Republican, and I know that you know um, Ron Anon is not thinking straight these days. Mm. So he might my, not, my senator for people who yeah, are who, so he do, might yeah, not be Ron understanding John. that yeah. the public really wants a huge infusion of money for vaccine distribution, manufacturing, vaccinators, and for um, and that um, state and local um, financing to retain middle class jobs like firefighters, nurses, and teachers is really popular. Um, he might not be thinking straight, but I have a feeling that it wouldn't be impossible that a few Republicans surface and end up voting for the package if, as I've described, it is pared down and more targeted. And I do believe um, that that's still being worked on. But the move to go before even week two of the administration to start the reconciliation um, actual process, which is going to take, you know, it's going to happen. This is going to go through March. This mm -hmm. is not, it's, it's a long time to go to all the committees of jurisdiction. I think so we have a long ways to go. And I do think, um, I do think that if you're a Republican, uh, you, depending on where the package goes, there is, there are reasons for Republicans to not be bipartisan on climate. There are reasons, many reasons for bipartisans to want to say that they supported this package. Well, another indication of, of possible uh, outbreak of bipartisanship uh, this this morning, Mitt Romney says he's going to propose providing at least three thousand dollars per child to uh, millions of American families, uh, which would lead, uh, which would lend uh, bipartisan support to Biden's push to dramatically expand child benefits. So apparently, Romney's proposal would provide what forty two hundred dollars a year for every child up to the age of six, as well as three thousand dollars a year for every child six to seventeen. And of course, Democrats are drafting legislation as part of that uh, stimulus proposal that would you know, provide uh, significant increases in that. So, so there you're starting to see some back and forth um, between some Republicans and who knows, uh, you know, there, there is that, that centrist block. And at some point, you know, they might find the sweet spot. A.B. Stoddard, thank you so much for your patience this morning and for uh, joining us on the podcast. I appreciate it. It was always terrific to be with you, Charlie. Thank you. All right. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.